Hello and welcome to Big Ideas, a podcast from Texas State University in San Marcos, Texas. I'm your host, Dan Seed, from the University's School of Journalism and Mass Communication. In this month's episode, it's October, we're talking bats, but the tie-in, not to Halloween, but really to a particularly deadly disease that is greatly affecting bats across North America. And for this episode, we're joined by Dr. Sarah Fritz and Dr. Ivan Castro-Ariano from the biology department here at Texas State, and Dr. Sarah Weaver, senior ecologist with Bowman Consulting, who received her PhD from Texas State, which included her dissertation on wind energy and its impact on bats. Thank you all for joining us. Thank you. Thank you for having us. So the focus of our discussion on this episode is how this group of researchers is helping to prepare a response to the deadly white nose syndrome that's devastating bat populations across North America. This research is funded by a $500,000 grant from the Texas Parks and Wildlife Department and is one of the largest grants ever awarded by Parks and Wildlife to study non-game animals. We'll get into the specifics of the grant in your research, but let's start here. What got each of you interested in studying bats? Well, I can tell you, Dan, when I was in junior high, my father took my sister and I to Austin for a visit. And we went to the Congress Avenue Bridge to watch the bat emergence. And I remember being in such awe of these animals living in such close proximity to people in the city with the hustle and bustle of the cars, uh, the bridge itself. And it was just such a wonderful display that I knew at that point in time that I was hooked. I wanted my future to involve some type of work with bats. I didn't know at the time what that would be, but I knew I always wanted to work with them from that point forward. Dr. Fritz, Dr. Castro-Ariano. Sure. Um, I started working with bats while I was an undergraduate, um, of course, just on field trips when we went out to trap various uh, taxa of vertebrates. And um, I always loved catching bats. And actually, my best friend got her first technician job working with bats in the eastern United States. So I went out with her several times and helped, and then we worked in Yellowstone National Park doing a bat inventory. But I did not do my graduate degrees on bats, but instead focused on reptiles, amphibians, and mostly rodents. So at North Carolina State University, though, I was part of the USGS Climate Science Center. I was a fellow there for two years. And then that was during my PhD. And then when I went to Texas Tech, I was also part of their Climate Science Center. And my PhD focused on how harvesting woody biomass for energy production influenced ground-dwelling vertebrates. So here in Texas, instead of using, you know, harvested wood for bioenergy, obviously we're using wind energy. We're the biggest um, producers of wind energy in the United States. So here is the same type of questions that I had as a PhD student at North Carolina State University, but instead focused on bats and wind energy. In my case, just like I consider myself a mammalogist and an ecologist. So for most of my career, I have studied mammals. Just, uh, my dissertation was on rodents. But then at the end of my dissertation, I started working on diseases that are in wildlife and that pass to humans that are zoonotic. We call those zoonotic diseases. And bats are a very important uh, group for the transmission of, uh, I mean, they carry many of these diseases. And that's where my interest falls. And another, uh, another part of my research that is just like interesting bats, I study the activity patterns of animals. And bats are a fantastic study system for, for that. Just like, I mean, there are very different reasons why animals have activity at certain hours. And this part of the questions that we're asking 
is asking for just like for more the most activity of these animals in the landscape. So that's my interest. That's why why I would like to just like get into this into this area. Before we get into the the main focus here and the study that you're doing on this, um, I want to keep it kind of in that general concept with this idea of bats. You know, earlier this summer, my family were out in our yard, and lo and behold, there was a bat clinging to a tree in our front yard. And the next day, we're outside, and the poor little fellow was dead on the ground. Thankfully, it tested negative for rabies. And you know, I had an experience in college with a bat coming into our apartment when I lived in Boston. And people just have these these conceptions about bats, right? That they're scary and, and this, that, and the other. But tell us why for just the general public to better understand what you do, but also to better understand the importance of this research that you're doing on white nose syndrome. Why are bats so important? How are they so important just to the environment overall? Bats provide a lot of services, both for the ecosystem and for humans. They're very important pollinators and also very important for pest control. They are estimated to save Texas cotton farmers $74 per acre in reduced pesticide use and pest control. So $75 per acre for cotton farm adds up to a lot of money. In fact, it's uh, estimated that that saves about $53 billion annually. Does that sound right, Sarah? Um, I don't have the numbers in front of me, but I think $53 billion annually worldwide for pollination and pest control. So in terms of agriculture, they are extremely important. Yeah, those numbers, actually, the billions are for North America, to my understanding. It's even likely more. It's, it's, it's upwards in the billions um, across the U.S. and in North America for pest control. Uh, they're also really important seed dispersers. They help to regenerate the forest. And you're right, they are misunderstood. A lot of people think that bats are blind, and that's actually not the case. They actually have very good vision. So they're very important for the ecosystem, not only for what they do for us, but they're also important to other organisms as prey species. Right. So it's important to, to keep both ends of the spectrum in mind. Yeah, if you've ever been to a large bat colony before emergence, it's pretty common that not only birds of prey, but mammals, snakes, they all come around and start gathering. And then as they fly out and emerge, they're getting picked off as prey, which is an incredible thing to watch, but also just shows their importance in the trophic level interactions. And so highlighting that importance, I think, puts it into perspective and context for people out there, why this research that you're doing is important, not only in a research aspect and within your individual interests, but to the environment as a whole. So let's start here. What is white nose syndrome? Sure. So white nose syndrome is a fungal infection that's been infecting bats in um, North America since, well, there's evidence of it since 2006. So it is thought that this fungus was brought over from Europe and introduced into our cave systems in New York. Since 2006, what well, was found in 2007, however, there are photos that show that bats probably had the fungus in 2006. And since then, it has gone from a very localized issue for New York and spread all throughout the, well, basically from New York all the way to Texas now. As of March of this year, we had our first die-off of bats due to white-nose syndrome. And what it does, it's a fungus that gets on their face, and it also gets on their wing membranes and wakes them up during hibernation. So the fungus itself doesn't, as far as we know, kill the bat. Instead, the bats wake up multiple times during hibernation and when they wake up, it expends a lot of energy and also a lot of water resources. So they wake up during a time also when there's no food and water available. So they end up dying from uh, starvation and dehydration. And it's estimated now that, well, it's been years since I've heard the figure 6 million bats have been killed 
by white nose, but there's, we really don't know because a lot of the bats that are dying obviously do far away from humans where they live. But we do know that it's upwards probably at this point into the double digit millions of bats. And it's even caused some bats to become endangered. It's completely wiped out entire populations. So what are we seeing, and maybe this is a, a purpose of the grant that you have, but what are we seeing here in Texas in relation to white nose syndrome with the bat populations here? Well, so far, um, as far as we know, it's only affected one species, which is our cave myotis. And our cave myotis is a pretty abundant bat here in Central Texas. There were several cave myotis found dead in Central Texas in February and March of this year due to white nose syndrome. So, so far, we don't really know. And part of that is because we don't have a good baseline idea of what occupancy and abundance of bats are in the area. They're super hard to study. If you've ever tried to catch bats, it's, it's not that easy. They're, they're high flyers. They're, you know, they can see nets and they're out obviously at night. So they're, they're pretty difficult to study. So, you know, we just don't have a good idea of how it's affecting bat populations and bat community. But we do know that it has affected the cave myotis. And we also know that there's many species that live here in Texas and that hibernate here in Texas that have had population crashes in other states due to white nose syndrome. Uh, I was going to say, that's right. We also have species in West Texas that are naive and have never been introduced to the, the fungal parasites. So we don't really know how they're going to respond, but they're closely related to other species that have been impacted and we've seen declines. So there's some worry as to what's going to happen with those populations. And there's another point to add because that we have a migratory species here in Texas that there are another steer that we have that uh, potentially this species there is going to be um, lesser likelihood that it's going to get affected by this uh, fungus. But the scare is that just like in the migratory movements, <coughs> it might take these uh, fungus, I mean, spread it further into Mexico. And uh, there's, a, there's a higher diversity of bats in Mexico that have never been exposed to these pathogen. And again, we don't know, just we have many unknowns that is how this uh, pathogen is gonna affect these species. But we have colleagues in Mexico that are monitoring potentially the spread of the disease. And uh, so this, this species is important than for, because of the, the, the potential for to spread it out because of the movement it has, the migratory behavior. I think this is an important point. So bats here in Texas have two options for the winter. They either hibernate or they migrate to a warmer area. And so here in Central Texas, our most abundant bat, the um, Brazilian free-tail or Mexican free-tail bat that everyone knows about under the Austin Bridge or the Congress Bridge in Austin and also some of the caves around here, those are migratory bats for the most part. However, the fungus has been found in the caves that they are in currently when they're here in Central Texas. So they, they have the fungus. Will it affect them? We don't know because if they don't hibernate and they don't go to sleep, then they're not going to be continuously woken up, which leads to starvation and dehydration. But as uh, Dr. Castro mentioned, they might be spreading it even to a whole new continent, you know, on their fur and, you know, that could be taking it to more susceptible bats to other places that are also naive that have not been introduced to the fungus before. The fungus does live in Europe and has been found also in Asia. And in Europe, it doesn't affect the bats. The bats there have a tolerance to it. They evolved and adapted with the fungus. So it's just really these new places that it's being introduced is what is causing the problem. So let's talk about the grant itself and what it is that, that you're doing with this grant in terms of identifying this here in Texas? What is Parks and Wildlife looking for with this study? 
Sure. So there's a lot of experts all over the United States, North America, and probably the world that are studying white nose syndrome. And we all have our different areas of expertise. For us, we are basically researching the abundance and distribution of bats through Texas in hopes that we can provide some baseline data so that after this winter, we can have some idea of how it's affecting our bat populations here. So we're not actually going out and looking for the actual fungus or for cures for the fungus, but instead trying to understand how it's affecting the overall populations and communities of bats here in Texas. Right, and that will help Texas Parks and Wildlife Department understand where they need to focus their management strategies. If we don't know where the impacts are occurring, then we can't appropriately manage for them. Right, and it could give us some indication as well, as Dr. Weaver mentioned before, of new species that are being affected. You know, if we keep these detectors up long term, uh, which we're hoping to do, then we can basically understand some population trends and see if there are die-offs in the future. And let me just like also a comment in there, just to put into context or perspective to people that are outside, academia outside that were just like, we're basically what the project is doing, we're sitting all over the state, there's what we call these bad detectors. You know, bats produce some sounds that we humans, we cannot hear, however. But technology, I mean, our colleagues, and you know, there has been a lot of work in this area. And now there are devices, these devices, what they do, they have these uh, sense, very sensitive microphones. And they, when a bat passes by and it produces the sound, these, uh, these devices detect that and we can record. Now, for some species, it's possible to determine the species, or if not, at least we know that there's bat activity in the area. For some, we can detect, hey, this is a species A or a species B. That requires, I mean, it's not possible for all of them, but at least we get some idea of the activity. So in order to have this baseline uh, data that Dr. Fritz was mentioning, we have to kind of sample all over the state, which creates a very unique problem because it's a gigantic state. It's a very, very large state. Sure. In the traditional way to, to count bats or to figure out is we put nets and we trap them in those nets and we then just have the animals in our hands and we release them. That is not practical at the level of the state. That's simply not practical. So we use technology, technology putting these devices and in a very, there's a whole design for how these, these are put in the landscape. And then we just, they put those to sample all of, I mean, throughout the year. They are going to be sampling throughout the year to get these calls from bats. And that's going to provide that first baseline, that information. So it's a very interesting mix of technology, a lot of logistical effort, and just like getting the calls from the bats. So we actually, we're not catching the bats. We're just getting the sound that they produce. And so these, these uh, devices, we know the, the geographical location, and we also we know the hour. We can also detect another part that I was mentioning earlier, the activity at what exact time of the day that they are active. So, I mean, just to put into context, what's the real, uh, the main activity of the, of the project? So these devices pick up their echolocation calls. And with these echolocation calls, we can get activity levels. We can see, we can't count the bats because we don't know if it's one bat hovering over one of the detectors or if there's a hundred flying over. But we can get activity levels. And then we can also often determine the species, identify the species based on the call patterns. So we take the sound profiles and put them in software programs and then look at the sonograms of the shape of the calls. And through those shapes and frequencies, we can sometimes, not always, identify bats to species. So we'll get some just some idea of the abundance or relative abundance, I guess, activity levels uh, and distribution of bats throughout the state. 
And I think technology is really important here. Um, it's an important component, not only because of the bat detectors, but also historically, and this goes for all work probably everywhere with, with any animal or, and even non-animals, but there's been a lot of researchers that have been working on bats for a long time. And all of us have our different methodologies. And so it's difficult sometimes to compare research and results over state lines or even from university to university or researcher to researcher. So in 2015, some biologists got together and they formulated what's called the NABAT protocol. And this protocol is a way for bat biologists across the United States to have similar methodologies so that we can combine all of our data in databases, then look at long-term and overall trends in order to conserve bats. So I think that's an important component as well. So we are following these guidelines and methodologies through the NABAT program, the North American Bat Monitoring Program, to facilitate this research. It's very interesting. The technology that you're describing, the way that you're going about doing this, and of course, it's critical work, as you all mentioned, with the environment here in the state and with the the kinds of bats that we have. (laughs) Dr. Castro brought up the idea of the sound. And one thing that I did want to kind of segue to is a study, uh, actually the dissertation that Dr. Weaver did on the effect of wind turbine with bat. So Dr. Weaver, I guess I'll start with you on that. What did you find? Sure, well, Texas is the largest producer of wind energy in the nation. Uh, We have the most wind turbines on the landscape. And unfortunately, we also have the the highest abundance of bats. Um, Actually, of anywhere in the world, we have the largest bat colony just about 30 minutes south of us in Bracken Bat Cave which houses 10 to 20 million Mexican free-tailed bats. And again, is the largest known in the world. And that combination is not great for bats because bats are killed by wind turbines. It's actually estimated that it's the largest cause of direct fatality for bats in the world. So here in the U.S., their bats are dealing with kind of a multi-front system. They're dealing with this disease. Those that hibernate are typically the ones that are affected by the disease, but those that migrate are affected by wind turbines. And so for my dissertation, I was looking at the impacts of wind energy on bats in Texas. And and despite having all these wind turbines and all these bats, Texas has very little data that have been produced looking at this issue. Most of the companies here do some type of effort. They do studies, but it's usually proprietary and it's not made publicly available. And we found that at my study site in South Texas, we did see some moderate to high bat fatality rates. And one of the components of my dissertation was looking at trying to reduce those impacts by using an ultrasonic acoustic deterrent to dissuade bats from flying around wind turbines, thereby reducing fatalities. And it uses sound as well. So like we were talking about, bats echolocate and they produce this high frequency ultrasound. And they use this for navigation as well as for foraging and socializing in the airspace. And so if we can create a device that could go on wind turbines that produces a sound that makes it difficult for them to hear their own echolocation so they can no longer orient or forage, then it would make it difficult for them to be in the airspace around a wind turbine, fly away, thus decrease fatalities. And so our the detectors that we were testing did have positive results for two species in particular, the Mexican free bat, the one that we've been talking a lot about that's migratory and forms that large colony, but also it showed significant reductions for the hoary bat. And the hoary bat's been one of the most highly impacted species by wind energy. And some have even predicted that if we do nothing at all, the species could decline by as much as 95% by 2050 due to wind energy alone. Wow. So it's, it's a high priority species for conservation efforts with wind energy impacts. 
Um, so we were very successful and excited to see that, but it wasn't positive for all species. We did not see an effect for yellow bats, for the northern yellow bat in particular. So we have, you know, we're excited about those results, but we're continuing our work. We want to improve. And so I actually have a, another project with Dr. Fritz where we've built a, as far as we know, the world's largest outdoor bat flight cage specifically for bats at Texas State. We have those deterrents there operating under different treatment settings. And in this situation, we're able to observe the individual bats behavior and response to the deterrents directly. With my study, we didn't have an ability to do that. We could count bats the next morning and determine if it was effective or not, but we couldn't observe the behavior. And so now we're working to try to increase the effectiveness by using that species-specific behaviors in this flight cage. And Dr. Fritz has uh, two master's students who are working on that project currently. So we're really excited about that and, and hopeful that we're going to be able to increase those reductions. And she mentioned um, the, the flight cage. It's, it's pretty cool. It's out at, um, like she said, the Freeman Center. It's about 62 meters long and 10 meters wide. And we're using thermal cameras. So we have thermal cameras um, mounted on high posts uh, to track that flight behavior under the different treatments. And then also using the same devices that we're using for the White Nose Syndrome Project, the acoustic detectors throughout the flight cage so that we can also listen to their echolocation calls. Because we think it's possible that if we try to jam their echolocation at one frequency, they might shift to another frequency, just as we would on a walkie-talkie, right? So we're actually tracing their uh, behavior both through thermal cameras and through echolocation detectors. If you think about it, we put one bat in at a time so that we don't, so, you know, we have individual results, but one bat in there at a time is a tiny little fleck. And then we have to catch them after the trial. So it's actually quite funny to watch people go in and try to catch this little needle in a haystack bat so that we can get ready for our next trial each night. I want to leave just with this question here. You know, we've talked about white nose syndrome. We've talked about the wind turbines. And clearly climate change is something that we could spend a whole nother podcast discussing. But in terms of bats, how critical is this time? You know, I, I know that their species is long. It's old. I get that we're just a small sliver of it. But how critical is this time period that we're in for the future of bats between climate change, between advent of new technology that affects them between diseases that are spreading from continent to continent. I mean, like in every mammal group of every vertebrate group, just like they're getting attacked by very different uh, sites from uh, human activities. I mean, we're destroying forests where they feed. We are, uh, when the pesticides that we use and all that gets into their system, we have to make some choices as humans in the future we really need to change, go away from fossil fuels and wind energy as an option. But also, we know that it's going to have some effects. And that's the reason that, just like that, was written the, 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 I mean, the dissertation of, of Dr. Will. How we can make compatible the use, the generation of green energy, because we need that. We need that. But also, we know that it kills wildlife. So we have to make those compatible as much as possible. Still, even with all the corrections that we have, we're still going to be uh, killing wildlife. But the, the potential effect of not using green energy, this green energy is probably going to have, have a much wider impact. So yeah, it's a hard time for bats. And especially, I mean, every now is worried right now with the, with the pandemic in humans. Imagine this disease that is way more lethal in some species of bats. 
and we introduce actually this pathogen in these populations of bats. So they are having their own pandemic, like epidemic that we cause. Yeah, I would like to echo that. I mean, for bats, obviously, this is a time that we need to be concerned. But it, this has been going on for a while, right? Not, you know, not white nose syndrome here in Texas, but just threats all over for all of our vertebrate species. It's been estimated that about a million species are of threat of extinction right now due to anthropogenic threats. And funguses are affecting frogs and they're affecting snakes. We have snake fungal disease and chytridiomycosis going on as well. Habitat fragmentation, climate change. I mean, all of our wildlife are struggling. And I agree with, with Dr. Castro that, you know, humans need to kind of wake up and see what's happening and make some very important decisions in the next coming years about how we conserve our wildlife populations. Right. We're, we're kind of in the middle of a perfect storm right now where, as you touched on, climate change is kind of the bigger wave that's about to eat all the little waves underneath it. And with that, you know, like Dr. Castro highlighted, wind energy is a very important component to being able to combat climate change. And in my experience, the industry is very interested in finding ways to reduce their impact. You know, bats being killed at wind turbines was an unintended consequence. Uh, they didn't expect that to be an issue. But now that we know that it is, they're partnering with researchers, NGOs, uh, agencies, government agencies, to try to find ways to fix the problem. And we all recognize that we need wind energy because climate change is really the bigger picture here with all this. And, and a lot, you know, the spread of disease, uh, it's going to increase with climate change as well. There's a lot of changes that need to be made uh, by people in order to ensure that we are able to conserve these populations for our own benefit, for our own health, for the ecosystem, for the planet as a whole. Well, I want to thank all three of you for joining us today. This has been really interesting to learn about bats, to learn about some of the perils that they're facing, and hopefully it's a wake-up call for people out there to have a little bit more appreciation for bats and to realize the actions that we do affect not only them, but then, of course, trickle down through our environment as a whole. So Dr. Sarah Fritz, Dr. Sarah Weaver, Dr. Ivan Castro-Ariano, thank you so much for joining us here on The Big Ideas, and thank you, our audience, for joining us again for another episode of Big Ideas here at Texas State. Big Ideas TXST is a presentation of Texas State University and the Division of University Advancement. Subscribe to experience more innovative, thought-provoking content. If you like what you hear, consider leaving us a starred review, five if possible. The views expressed during this program are those of the individual participants and do not necessarily represent those of the university. Big Ideas is hosted by Daniel Seed, produced by Jamie Bloschke, with technical assistance provided by Manuel Garcia. Strategic consultant is Kelly Raz. 